Soren, let me immediately welcome you. You and your team have been at IMD for the last three days, and I'm very really grateful that you're taking a few minutes for this discussion. Difficult to start this discussion without talking about the crisis that we've just gone through. But first, let's be very concrete. One of the challenges of this crisis is teams were no longer able to work together. But of course, you also had people at sea and you've been at the heart, of course, of supply chains all over the world. Concretely, what were some of the challenges that you faced when the crisis started? When the crisis started and we went into more or less global lockdown uh, during the month of uh, March. We first had to decide what was really important in terms of managing the company. We came up very clearly saying we need to protect our people, we need to serve our customers, and we need to help society fight the virus. And that has been our guiding, if you will, narrative all through this uh, crisis. Then the second part was really around figuring out how to work with 75% of our staff at any given time working from home, getting a new operating model up and running. It actually turned out to be much easier than I expected, but getting everybody used to video meetings and, and so on. And then the third element for us in the beginning was really about you know, ensuring that the company was safe and sound. We needed to look at our liquidity, we needed to look at cash flows and so on. And then finally in the first phase, we laid lots of plans for how we could engage with our people, and with our customers, you know, a new way of communicating when we could not meet physically. And quite early on, we recognized we needed to really step up our communication uh, efforts, both with customers and with our colleagues. And those four themes to begin with was really playing uh, defense, uh, if you will. Today, we are probably more in the, you know, the offense mode, accelerating out of this crisis and managing the recovery as well as we can. And we have really started the discussions now about what's different, what will return to the same and what will have changed forever after the COVID-19 pandemic. So that's pretty much where we are today. So let me actually build on this last point that you made. You said some things will be similar, some things will be different. One of the discussions, of course, over the last few months has been, uh, have we pushed globalization too far? Have we gone to supply chains that are so efficient that they're not resilient? And so there's a number of discussions around this. Of course, some degree of pushback in a number of countries against globalization. You are one of the vectors of globalization, right? You have been enabling globalization over the last few years. And let's also remind everyone that while globalization can be criticized on a number of fronts, globalization has also lifted hundreds of millions of people out of poverty over the last few decades. What will change? What will be the same? Are you anticipating a world that is going to become less global? Or are you anticipating that while the political noise dies down, everything will continue as before? So we were already into a period where we saw protectionism rising before the pandemic. Global trade expanded in volume terms by 7, 8, 9, 10% per year for 30 years from the beginning of the 80s until the financial uh, crisis. And then after the financial crisis more than a decade ago, growth has been 1, 2, 3, 5% in that, uh, that range. So we were already in a period of significantly slower growth. And our expectations continue to be that we will see global trade growing more or less in line with global GDP on average, 2-3%. I think when we look at the pandemic impact on global trade, then I think there are some very important conclusions to draw. Distance was never an issue during the pandemic. So 
the global transportation networks operated. Our ships operated, all the ports were open, warehouses were operating. All of this was actually critical infrastructure in every single country around the world. So our customers were able to ship their goods from one end of the world to the other. I'm not suggesting that there were not issues here and there, but they were local in nature and they were dealt with. Our customers who had problems with their supply chains, that was actually rooted not in transportation and logistics, but in manufacturing. And in particular, we saw or many of our customers experienced that they had designed their supply chains too much for efficiency and procured too much for low cost. So a lot of companies found out that they had single source situations of often quite uh, small parts, not very important parts, it was felt, and therefore we could give the whole thing to one supplier. And it turned out that you still cannot finish your product if you don't have that one part. Many customers also found out that they actually did not understand what kind of risk their own suppliers had. So what happened at the tier two and tier three suppliers, it doesn't matter if you have two suppliers, if they both rely on the same supplier for some subcomponent. So I'm pretty sure that many companies today will go through a process in the next year trying to get a better map of how the supply chain actually is put together. And how resilient it is. Resilient it is. And I think another element that is pretty clear is that many companies did not have sufficient buffer stock to be able to deal with disruption. And for that reason, they lost sales. It will give probably uh, new thinking in terms of how do we manage buffer stocks or inventory, while obviously for many years companies have moved towards the less inventory the better, but only to the point where you're not losing sales. And I'm sure that people will be rethinking in that area. I don't think that consolidating production in your home country will be an effective risk mitigation strategy, if you will, because the more you group things together geographically, the bigger the risk you take that something happens in that location. So my expectation would be actually that the pandemic will lead to more proliferation in the supply chains and more multi-sourcing strategies. So globalization will remain, but what will change is the multi-sourcing versus single sourcing. Now, moving on from the bad news and the difficulties, were there positive surprises? So earlier you already said it was actually easier for us to move online than we thought. Uh, Anything worked much better than you thought or anything where you went, wow, actually, that's a positive? In our company, we use Microsoft Teams as the solution, but I know there are many others. But having lots of meetings with my colleagues on Teams were highly effective, especially when the agenda is clear. And we found actually we were able to work in a much more agile way, also with more trust between team members. I think many of us that working in large organizations will recognize the situation that we have a meeting with a lot of people around the table and everybody feels that they have to weigh in with some comment or other. And the video format actually does away with a lot of that. So we have done much less, if you will, alignment meetings and steer co meetings and stuff like that. And we have done much more trusting members of the executive team to deal with this issue or that, that issue. And actually we have been more agile and move faster than, than we would usually do. And we'll, of course, try to see if we can capture some of that and keep it because it's worked really well for us. This is one thing that some companies find that in times of crisis, they actually do become more efficient because we don't necessarily try in times of crisis to get the last two or three percent. Basically, we're okay at 85 percent and then we're just going to move on and, and adjust. Now, there were changes outside of the company. There were also changes within the company, in particular, a number of new hires. You have a new CFO, you have a new CTIO. 
and also you moved in some places to a model of two in a box. So, so what was the reasoning behind these decisions and how has this affected the functioning of your team? So actually, we, we have not made changes to the executive team because of the pandemic. It just happened to be at coincide time-wise. We believe very strongly that in the next decade, next two decades, we have an opportunity to build a sustainable competitive advantage through technology. Also in our industry, we are digitizing uh, customers' transactions. We are digitizing the way we run the company. We are digitizing all the machines we have in terms of ships, containers, and ports. And we are building new products hopefully will drive new revenue streams. As many large companies uh, with a long history. We've gone through a period in the 80s where we had a lot of capability internally to build technology and then we outsourced everything in the early 2000s and, and today we are basically bringing that, uh, that capability back in-house because we want to, at least for the customer, differentiating stuff where we use technology. We want to be able to write our own code and be our own software uh, company and that journey we are on and that has continued through the pandemic and in fact you know, the investments that we have made so far in the last five years in digital came in very handy during the coronavirus. Uh, I mean, our customers are going to Merce.com to get prices. They can make bookings. They can do their document handling. They can pay. So all of these things were, you know, capabilities that we didn't have just a few years ago. And, of course, they were very handy in the, in, in the pandemic, I have to say. So, so we'll see more of that. But it requires that we bring that skill uh, in-house, at least to cover the differentiating processes. Interesting. So technology has gone from a support function that we try to minimize the cost of to something which is core. Now, you mentioned something about we can now go on the, on the website and quotes and so on. These sounds like very convenient for the customers and also potentially very efficient for you. Has this meant large reductions in, in employment in the company or have you found other ways of using the capabilities? So our administration cost is clearly trending down. Just like you have seen in online banking and other industries, if we provide a really efficient option to the customer online, then the customer much prefer to do the work herself, and as opposed to sending an email, waiting for an answer, or calling, getting on hold, and, and waiting for somebody to talk to. That has consequences in terms of how many people we need to deploy. Right, because there's more customer satisfaction, but there's also more efficiency. It takes less time. Absolutely. And we will see the same on how we run the company. We have a big effort to modernize our legacy technology state, which will also mean more standardized processes, and with more standardized processes, we can also automate more. Now, this signals a transformation for a company like yours, right? where historically the key assets were the ships, and of course the relationships, but basically it was about we're going to pick stuff up here and we're going to bring it there increasingly it's the competition is about data and so this is a real transformation you're also an organization that has been around for about a hundred years how easy or how difficult is it to transform such a long-standing proud and successful company what are some of the obstacles that you have been dealing with in bringing about this digital transformation in the last four years, we have been on this transformation uh, journey and we started out as a conglomerate in 2016. We had business interests in many different areas 
and we decided to focus everything on global logistics. So we've been divesting a number of companies. We have been acquiring a number of companies. So there's been like a structural phase. We have reorganized from being a conglomerate with standalone divisions to being effectively one company with an integrated organization. Now we are in the phase of, of building the new company which is, is a company that is basically focused on connecting and simplifying our customers' global supply chains. So our customers are car companies, it's the retailers, it's the e-tailers and chemical companies and whatnot who all run global supply chains. And we are not just about lifting, uh, moving a container from port to port anymore. We are providing end-to-end solutions. And with that comes a significantly heightened level of digital solutions because our customers want a lot more visibility. And by the way, that will be another outcome of the pandemic that demand for visibility in your supply chain will increase dramatically. Visibility and the ability to affect outcomes while in transit. It means from a point of view of transformation, we need to bring a lot of new people into the company. So when you build your own technology department, you actually need the people, the software engineers and so on to come inside the company. They bring new culture. We also brought in a lot of digital marketing capability and so on. So we need a different culture for the new company. Culture change takes a long time. It's also very challenging for the leadership in the sense that we need to learn new things. As you can see, I'm not a digital native. And figuring out how to lead a transformation of a $40 billion global company where there's a huge digital component and I don't even have a Facebook account. There's a lot of learning for me and for my colleagues uh, as well to be able to lead this journey. These new groups of employees, generally younger, also more tech-savvy, typically shorter horizon and shorter patience because living in a world of instantaneity, did this create frictions with your historical employee groups? Obviously, we see some colleagues who in the past have been in what we consider to be extremely important roles now have to share some of the limelight with others that are bringing different things to the equation. If you look at our sales effort, we have 2,500 salespeople around the world and our model for 50 years have been basically person to personal sales, so our salespeople out knocking on the customer store. Obviously, when the main vehicle for transactions today is Merce.com, we need to actually grab the uh, customers in a digital fashion also so that we can attract them, particularly smaller customers where the cost to serve with salespeople is, is very high, attract them digitally. That means there's a whole new group of people that actually matters for revenue and they have to share the limelight and that sometimes brings discussion. But I think we have managed well through it and certainly challenged ourselves in the leadership to be open-minded from anything from dress codes to work flexibility to whatever. If you had to pick one obstacle, what would have been the biggest obstacle? We're still moving through this, of course, but I think we've been going through this transformation at the same time where our core business, the ocean line business, was having some tough times. So doing a, a transformation at the same time as you actually have to deliver quarterly results and you have to improve those results every quarter has probably been our biggest obstacle in this. We are now, I'm very happy to say, on a really good uh, trajectory uh, in terms of earnings. Despite the, the pandemic reducing global trade volumes by a lot in the second quarter here, maybe 15-20%, we have been able to really continue to grow earnings, so we're quite pleased with that. Now, you, you mentioned the transformation. You mentioned also an organization that went from a somewhat diversified group to a more focused uh, organization. 
How has the role of the executive leadership team changed over the last few years, if at all? Well, I think we're still leading the strategy together, but we are spending less time, if you will, deep diving in performance reviews within each individual area. I'm happy that we are giving more trust to the leaders of the individual areas to, to run the business, and we are more focused in our own discussions on the forward-looking part. Before we went into the transformation, we were very much focused on this quarter, and the discussion was very much performance-related, so that changed. And how did that happen? It doesn't just happen that one day all of you show up and say, let's be more strategic. How did you make that happen? I'm not sure I can even answer that question, actually. It was pretty clear that as we went out on this journey, we needed to have a different dialogue. The dialogue also changed with our board because obviously our board wanted to see proof points that we were succeeding on the transformation and that also aligned the discussion in the leadership team. But, but were you conscious of the change as it was happening? Or, or again, are you now looking back and say it happened? No, we, we were quite conscious. Uh, we quite early on decided that we needed some what we today call transformation metrics. So, of course, we report our financials, which is a historic reporting, but we also report, initially it was only internally, but now it's also externally. We decided the number of, if you will, transformation metrics so that we could basically articulate, say, okay, you may not be able to see the effects of our transformation yet in our numbers, but these are some of the you know, metrics that you should look at that are leading indicator that we are changing the makeup of the company. Measures like how much revenue do we get from new logistics products, how many customers use our website, and these kinds of metrics. And so changing those metrics helped focus you on more strategic questions. So I want to conclude on a personal note, if I may. So one of the big discussions we have with executives and CEOs and pretty much every day is, yeah, I understand the world is changing, maybe I'm supposed to change too, but you know, I'm pretty much, by now, I'm relatively formed and it's in my DNA and by the way, are leaders born or are they made? Now, at IMD, we have a clear answer on this, which is the answer is both. We're very proud that you are an IMD MBA graduate and we're also very proud that you came back 20 years after your graduation to be a keynote speaker at that graduation. So you've been very good for a long time You've also been at this company for a while. You've now been CEO for four years. Have you had, at a personal level, to develop new skills, to, to change some of the ways that, that had made you successful before? How do you think of your own development? I, let me give you the same answer I give to all the many colleagues. When I travel around the world for business, I always have a breakfast with the 10 brightest young people in that organization and have breakfast for an hour, talk about whatever they want to talk about. And always during that hour, somebody is going to ask a question around, could you give us any career advice or what has made you a CEO and so on? And I have the same answer I always use. There are really three things that matter. And the first one is directly related to what you talk about, and that is stay curious. You really have to stay curious. Lifelong learning. I read a lot. I really try to get inspiration, not so much from my own industry, but seeing what are other people doing, what are some of the best companies in the world doing, and is there anything that I can see that could be applicable for us? If you stop caring or stop being curious about why people are doing things different than yourself, you might as well stop being a CEO. I think that's truly, truly important. I think another part of being a leader is what I call uh, you know, raise your hand. 
you need to take responsibility for outcomes. The good, exciting jobs, uh, including the CEO jobs, they go to people that take responsibility for outcomes, not sit around waiting for people to tell them what to do. And I think that as a CEO leading a transformation, I'm really taking responsibility for an outcome. We are transforming because we were not in a good place in 2016. And we were not on a profitable growth trajectory. And that's what we want to do. We want to be around for another 100 years. And if you have that perspective, you as a leader have to take the responsibility and say, I'm going to change this. I could sit around, manage the company. We could probably do quite well for a number of years, but we were not on a good path. And taking the responsibility for the outcome of of changing the trajectory of the company, I think is probably the biggest and best thing I can do for the company. And, uh, and then of course, uh, the last part is uh, work hard because you're not gonna make it to the top of any organization unless you're willing to do that. So curiosity, raise your hand and also plant the flag a little bit further out. And of course, when you're saying this, it resonates in my head, our purpose at IMD, we want to develop leaders who transform organizations and contribute to society. So there's an ambition. Three, work hard. There's got to be also an issue of energy, right? So we've just gone through a tough crisis. Mask is a big company. The pressure is high. How do you manage your energy? You get energy from different sources, right? Basically nutrition, exercise, and sleep. That, that's how you manage your energy. I've always been very good on the sleeping part. I get my eight hours. I'm introvert. I like a, a glass of wine as much as the next guy, but I go to bed at 10. I never close the bar. Then it's uh, more problematic for me to get the exercise uh, and, and control the eating. But that's really how I, I, I manage my energy, my, the physical energy levels. And then there's the mental. But the mental energy is really for me about this curiosity and always seeking out what's going on. And as you mentioned before, I came back 20 years after I graduated. I gave the graduation speech to the MBAs, but I've been back to IMD pretty much almost every year since because I get inspired and challenged, and I think that gives me mental energy, if you will. Let me close on the issue of offense. You started, you remember this conversation by saying we played a lot of defense early on because, of course, survival is objective number one, but we also want to survive these crises in a way that enable us to thrive in the post-crisis phase. And I, and I guess you and I have discussed this before and we've called this playing offense. Tell us a little bit more about this. Now that we've, we're, we feel relatively comfortable with the defense part, now we're moving more to the offense part. Yeah, so the, the early part of the offense is, to, of course, for us just as a business to make the most out of the recovery. And that means that we need to have our assets in the right place. In our case, they move around. We want to be there where the demand as the world recovers. But we also believe that this is a true chance to reset our competitive position. We have preserved cash. We have a very strong balance sheet today. We have firepower today to make, uh, if you will, offensive and use this opportunity to reset our uh, competitive position, whether it is to recruit a lot of new people that you know, would like to work for our company because they see it as a leader in our industry and somebody who is trying to do new and exciting things, or whether it's because we have the cash to actually go out and buy that competitor or somebody with a set of capabilities and skills that we would like to import. So I suspect we will have a, quite an active second half of uh, 2020 playing offense. Reaping some of the benefits of the first half and using the resources that you generated. Soren, it was a pleasure. It's, a, it's an institutional pleasure, but it's also a personal pleasure. And we wish you all the best in the years to come. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed this conversation as much as I did. 
To hear more such interviews as soon as they come out, click subscribe or follow wherever you're listening to this. You can also find a range of forward-thinking analyses, business intelligence and insights in our new magazine and content ecosystem called I by IMD. You will be able to register by clicking in the link that appears in the show notes of this episode. Thank you for listening and until next time.